Hello, I'm Cal Cofield, and you're listening to the Physics Central Monthly News Podcast. This is a new segment that we're going to be repeating in the months to come. Each month, Mike Lucibella and I will bring you a short roundup of some of our favorite physics stories from the past 30 days. I'm Cal Cofield. And I'm Mike Lucibella. And you're listening to the Physics Central Podcast. Things are fairly rocky in this month's Physics Central news podcast. Story number one, an asteroid made a close approach to Earth earlier this month. The asteroid, nicknamed the Beast, came within 776,000 miles of Earth. That's a little more than three times the distance to the moon. The asteroid's official name is 2014 HQ-124. Astronomers first spotted it on April 23rd of this year using the NEOWISE Space Telescope. NEOWISE searches for asteroids and other small objects using infrared light. That's a kind of light that even human bodies radiate. Most objects that aren't icy cold give off at least some infrared radiation. When the beast made its closest approach to Earth on June 8th, scientists also got a better look at it using radar. Through these observations, astronomers were able to determine that the asteroid is 1,200 feet long at its widest point, so only about a quarter of a mile. Last year, a meteorite passed through the atmosphere above the Russian city of Chelyabinsky. It burned up before it hit the ground, but the shockwave it created injured more than a 1,000 people and caused significant property damage. Before that meteorite entered the Earth's atmosphere, it was about 65 feet long. If an object the size of the beast were to hit the Earth or enter the atmosphere, it wouldn't wipe out life as we know it, but it would cause significant damage. If an object this size were heading towards the Earth, scientists would be able to anticipate where it would land to within one kilometer, so they would probably have time to arrange some kind of evacuation. Astronomers are actively searching for objects larger than one kilometer that could come close to Earth. They estimate that they've identified more than 90% of those objects. Okay, over to you, Mike. Thanks, Kala. You know, it's been a big month for space rocks because just last week, some old lunar samples gave us a better idea of where our moon came from. So the prevailing theory is that about 4.5 billion years ago, planet Earth was all by its lonesome orbiting the sun without a celestial partner. Then a giant Mars-sized meteorite came by and smashed into the primordial Earth, sending debris hurtling out into space. You know, that massive cloud of intermingled meteorite remains and Earth-rock rubble all coalesced together and formed our moon. The problem with this theory is that physical evidence has proved elusive. The moon should be made up of a significant amount of this theorized meteorite, dubbed Thea, but we haven't seen it, at least until now. A research team led by Daniel Horowitz at the University of Cologne in Germany reanalyzed a bunch of moon rocks brought back by the Apollo space program. They focused in on looking at the specific oxygen isotope, oxygen-17, and found that the moon rocks had a little bit more than the average Earth rocks. This could be the actual remnants left over from Thea. Planetary bodies with a higher concentration of oxygen-17 tend to have been formed around the center of the solar system, meaning that the meteorite would have originated around Mercury's orbit. Now, these samples alone don't definitively clinch the colossal impact theory, but it's a pretty good hint in that direction. Gala, back over again to you. Story number three, the most abundant mineral on Earth, has just been given a name. 
Bridgmanite is more common on our planet than any other mineral, and most people have never seen it. The reason Bridgmanite only just got its name and the reason most people have never seen it is because it exists almost exclusively deep below the Earth's surface. You may remember from basic geology that the Earth is like a spherical layer cake. It has a molten core, which is wrapped in a mantle and topped off by the crust. Bridgmanite is believed to make up most of the lower mantle. This is a region 400 miles below the surface, and it is more than 600 miles thick. By comparison, the crust of the Earth is at most 20 miles thick. Scientists have only been able to study the lower mantle region indirectly by observing how earthquakes travel through the Earth. From those studies, they've deduced that most of the lower mantle is made up of this mineral, which was previously referred to as silicate perovskite. This is the technical description for the mineral, but it hasn't yet been given its own name. Scientists are fairly sure that none of the silicate perovskite in the lower mantle makes its way to the surface, so they have no way of studying it directly. Or at least they didn't until a group of scientists found a sample of the mineral in a meteorite. In 1879, a rock from outer space crash-landed in Queensland, Australia. In 2009, a team of scientists started working on classifying one of the minerals in that meteorite sample. Over the last five years, they've worked to show that the mineral in the meteorite is the same one found in the lower mantle of the Earth. 4.5 billion years ago, when this meteorite was forming, it probably collided with other meteorites. This creates an environment of very high pressure and temperature, which is similar to the environment deep inside the Earth. So that's why Bridgmanite can form in both of those places. The new name Bridgmanite was made official by the International Mineralogical Association. It was named after the 1946 Nobel Prize winning physicist Percy Bridgman, who made contributions to the study of how minerals react when they experience extremely high pressures. And now back to Mike with a slightly less rocky story. Thanks, Kella. Around most ponds at night, you can almost always hear cacophony of croaks and ribbits coming from the local population of frogs. So it's not really a surprise that these aquatic amphibians can hear each other in the dark, but how much can they actually see? As it turns out, probably a fair amount. A recent experiment showed that the light receptors in their eyes register individual photons, the most fundamental unit of light. Frogs' eyes, like humans, have two different kinds of cells that see light, called photoreceptors. Cones see color and are primarily used for bright conditions, and rods are more sensitive, so are best for really low light. A team of scientists from the Data Storage Initiative in Singapore harvested individual rod cells from an African clawed frog. Now, when light activates these photoreceptors, they send an electrical impulse to the brain. So scientists mounted the single rod cells on the end of a very tiny pipette that can measure electrical signals. When they shot the rod cell with a single photon, it activated and sent a signal along the pipette that they could register with their instruments. It's cool because this is in line with previous estimates based on how the cells behaved when bombarded by larger numbers of photons. You know, this is the first time an experiment was set up to only shoot one photon at the rods at a time. It's also cool because similar estimates hint that the human eye is about as sensitive. I kind of like the idea that my own eyes are super-efficient natural particle detectors. 
And that's been the first edition of the Physics Central News Podcast. We'll be back next month with some of our favorite physics stories. In the meantime, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. I'm Calla Cofield. And I'm Mike Lucibella. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.